welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 111, and we're here talking about generative AI and the complete destruction of learning as we know it, or maybe not. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster-Paredes, and I'm a teacher who codes. And we are welcome today by a uh, welcoming today a great friend of the show, Eric Mathis, uh, author of uh, Python Crash Course, uh, uh, author of a Substack um, subscription area where you can get uh, Python musings all the time. Um, Eric, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me again. It's, uh, I think you this officially makes you the uh, most returning guest, and we are super excited to have you with us today to talk through this, especially after our conversations at the Education Summit at PyCon. Thank you. I love talking to you both. I'm very happy to be back. I think Eric was like one of the first people we met. Yes. Yes. When I we met first, you guys before, before, before we, we knew what we were. Yeah. That's <laughs> <was> awesome. awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation uh, to talk about AI because um, it felt like when we were at, at the Education Summit talking about this, that we were missing something very important. And that something was Kelly. So now we've got you here. We've got you in yes. the conversation. Um, I, I can't wait to, to dive right into um, the conversation and learn about uh, this area and talk about some of the things that we're trying to figure out together. So before we do that, why don't we uh, start with the wins of the week? And I think we're going to try something a little bit different here. Uh, one of us <laughs> didn't prepare a win for this week, so we've asked ChatGPT to generate a win for us. So your task as the audience or the listener is to figure out which one it is. So um, Eric, would you like to go first? Sure. Uh, my win of the week, this is going to be, this is going to throw your contest a little bit. Um, I've been writing a weekly newsletter about Python and it's a lot of work, but it's really fun because it puts me into something different most weeks. And so I did a, um, a dive into looking at what are the most recent, what are the most popular recent Python projects on GitHub? Um, it kind of got me into not just what does everybody know about, but what are people putting out there? And so one of them was a project called Git Sim which um, generates images and animations of your own project as managed by Git. Um, and so I was fascinated by the project and I ended up um, contributing the initial test suite for that project. And I don't do a whole lot of contributions to other people's projects because I have so many of my own going on. So it's very satisfying to get a PR merged. That's pretty good. So, so like an actual photograph or generated art or something like that from your Git history? Yeah, you, you run a command like git sim uh, merge new branch, and it will generate an image of what um, that merge operation looks like, which um, commits are being merged into which other parts of hmm. your project. Hmm. Oh, very cool. I have, yeah, I have some very cool active for teaching and learning. I have some very active projects that that would be uh, interesting to run and see what happens. Yes. So you'll see what what's going in and how you're merging it back. How's that? Explain it. Sorry, I'm processing slowly. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the things I really like about this is it's it acts on your own project. So rather than just like here's a tutorial about about how Git works, we're all going to use this sample project. It acts on your own project. So you come into the project with an understanding of what you think your your um, Git history has been doing. Um, and most Git history is basically a series of commits. And so you see those series of commits as um, circles. Um, but if you have branches, where how do those fit in with your other commits? How do commits on a new branch fit in with a development branch? 
what does emerge do? Um, and so if you have an accurate understanding of Git, um, how it works internally, it shows you that. And if you don't have a solid understanding of how Git is actually working, it can give you a much better idea of what those operations do. That's Ooh. awesome. I really need to get into that because I, I, I failed at the whole branching thing. <laughs> Branches are so useful. I have a I have a lot of junior engineers that I think would find this very helpful uh, to be able to see this. Um, one of the things they definitely struggle with is is building that mental model in their mind of what actually happens with the different Git commands that they're using. Um, so I'm I'm excited right. to use this. Yeah. Very cool. cool. All right, Kelly, how about you? Me? Okay. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's summertime, so I've been taking the initiative to start a new hobby, and I um, decided to start playing an instrument. So that's what I'm doing, and I'm dedicating um, time during the week to actively pursue and engage in that hobby. <laughs> so what instrument are you learning? I am learning the recorder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have a feeling that this is not going to be as hard of a contest as we as we originally set out. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> Very cool. But apparently starting something new and investing my in my own personal growth is a valuable accomplishment. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Um we'll we'll take its word for it. <laughs> Uh, so for, for me, um, I guess kind of two things that have been a win, uh, this week, I'm going to, I can't choose between them. The first one was, um, one of my, my new engineers who's been working on my team for about last six or seven months, um, solved a problem that I had been working on and I hadn't quite gotten to yet. And it was one of those great moments where she, um, figured out a way to do it that I guess I had, had considered, but didn't didn't really like give it much credence or didn't really pursue it and she ran with it and made it work and it totally solved the problem that we were trying to solve and i was super excited because she just really dug into it and, and took the initiative to solve it and i have the feeling it's um you know just this major milestone on her journey because she knew that she did something that i hadn't been able to yet and that was something that was uh i think really satisfying for her so i'm I saw that as a big win. It's great to see um, people growing and developing right in front of your eyes. And, and that was a, a big moment. Um, so very satisfying, satisfied the inner teacher in me because I've been, been investing a lot of time into helping her grow and develop and to see her like start to um, or continue to grow and develop as I knew she could. has been really satisfying. So that's very cool. Yeah. I do have actually another one. It's not really my win. Okay. But um, two of our former students, Asar and Aman Thompson, just got picked by the NBA, the fourth and fifth pick. They, wow. they, yeah. So very, very cool to see those boys. So that was awesome. One's going to, I think, the Rockets, and one's going to the Pistons. That's pretty amazing. It's pretty, yeah. Do you That's remember? Fun. Were you there with them? No, they were. I think a year mm -hmm. or two ahead of when I taught. But mm. I, um, I know you've introduced me to them a few times, and you can't miss them. They're like seven foot tall twins. So, well, now they're probably taller, but <laughs> very definitely, cool. Definitely helps with the basketball. And on the sports front, the other one that I had was um, I was in San Diego this week with my family on vacation. 
Uh, we went to the San Diego Zoo with the, <clears throat> with my kids, and I hadn't been there in I don't know since I was ten years old. And it was um, it was a lot of fun. And as we were leaving the park, my son looked up and said, "Hey, look, lacrosse!" <laughs> and he's um, he's been learning how to play lacrosse for the last three or four years. And I've spent already a fair number of hours watching him play and, and on the sidelines. And it turns out that the World Lacrosse Men's Championships is happening in San Diego right now. And the opening game was on Wednesday night. So we were able to go get tickets and watch us play Canada and have like the opening ceremonies with all the teams coming on the field. Um, there's 30 teams from all over the world playing together and they, um, haven't played since 2018. They normally play every four years. They, um, pushed back a year because of COVID. Um, and so we got to go see some really, really top class men's lacrosse being played in San Diego. And we just happened to stumble upon it. Um, and what's great about it is that for the most part, it's not this huge venue. It's very up close and personal. We went to one of the pool games, uh, yesterday morning before we flew home and we were standing right on the sidelines at midfield watching some of the best players in the world play lacrosse and it was uh, a lot of fun to watch and the players came out and talked with all the kids and everything after the game so it was uh just one of those great moments where sometimes you look up and you see something that's a great opportunity and it all plays out to your benefit that's awesome that's what happens when you don't have a phone in your hand I mean, I think I might have been looking at my phone when he saw the billboard. Good on him. Yeah. All right, let's get into this topic, because every time we have a guest, I always want to get into the topic and we never really we always kind of skirt the topic. And now you guys have promised me to reenact the topic of PyCon that I missed. Yeah, well, let's get started. I think, Eric, you had posited the question um, at the Education Summit and ran I think it was a group of 12 to 15 people through um, uh, a workshop discussion around the impact of AI on education, particularly chat GPT, but many other models that are coming out um, and emerging. Can you talk us a little through a little bit of um, kind of how you came up with that workshop idea and what, what happened at the education summit for the discussion? Sure. Um, I'd like to take a step back for a moment and just for people who are not at the education summit, share that um, I've been going to the Education Summit since it first started. Um, I went to my first PyCon in 2012, and I forget if it was that year or the next year, um, but I saw an Education Summit proposed, and so I signed up for it. I think it might have been 2013. Um, do you guys know off the top of your heads? Uh, no, I might be able to look yeah. it up real quick. but Yeah. Um, so I've been going to everyone since then, everyone that I've that I've attended, which has been most of the PyCon since then. And this was the best education summit that I can remember. Um, and I think it's worth saying that, and I think it's worth kind of articulating some of the reasons for that. Um, sound good? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so it feels like um, we've resolved the attendance questions. And for people, I think this is worth hearing for people who are considering going to PyCon and in particular going to the, the education summit. I think just about everybody in this audience would enjoy the Education Summit. Um, for people who are unaware of kind of the background of, of setting up the summit, um, it's typically on the Thursday um, when the when PyCon starts, and it's the same day that tutorials are happening. And tutorials are paid presentations about particular topics. And when people sign up for PyCon, um, they're presented with all these options for what they can do throughout the the um, conference. 
And so people come to the Thursday options and they see a bunch of paid options and then they see the free education summit. And so what ends up happening is a lot of people just check the box. Um, and then we, as the organizers get, um, oh, 150, 200 people are going to show up for the education summit and then 50 people show up or 60 or 40. And if, Felt, for a few years, it felt like we were doing something wrong. Like these people had signed up for something and then lost interest. And somebody finally named the issue that of what's happening. These people are just checking off the free option and then realizing that it's not a fit for them. Um, and so I, I don't remember who named that, um, but I appreciate that because it kind of dropped the question for a lot of us of what are we doing wrong and helped me realize that the people who need to go to the education summit end up going to the education summit. Um, and it's such a good group of people, um, and letting go of that concern that we were missing something was really nice. Yeah. And I, I think one of the side benefits of this that has worked out to our advantage at the education summit has been that we always get a room that's quite a bit larger than I think the number of seats we actually need for folks, yep. but we turn that into something uh, very useful in the afternoons, which is these yes. this idea of breakout sessions where we can split out and talk about various subjects that are of interest to different people, depending on where they are and what they're doing, um, which kind of leads into um, the opportunity here for the workshop was one of these breakout sessions that we um, that we arranged to be able to take advantage of the space that we have. Yeah. I'm going to name a couple other quick things. Um, the, all the content was relevant. And so it used for a while, it felt like we should be splitting into tracks of like, um, K-12, um, undergrad graduate, but for whatever reason, the talks have, have met the needs of most people who show up. Um, and I think your podcast might have something to do with that, uh, because you two are grounded in middle school, but you've brought together a variety of all kinds of people who just deal with teaching Python. Um, and I think I'm seeing that in education summit and I'm not sure what the connection is, but it's a good thing. Um, so yeah, uh, what was interesting about organizing this year's summit, as far as what, um, talks to include is that the call for proposals ended before GPT really came out. And so there wasn't a chance for people to propose talks about how GPT and AI tools um, might be impacting teaching and learning. And so when I saw that and saw that there were two workshops in the afternoon and we typically do three to four just to give people choice and get smaller groups. Um, I proposed just facilitating a conversation about exactly this question. Um, <laughs> anybody who wants to talk about AI and its impact on teaching and learning, um, come over to this corner and we'll, we'll organize that conversation. And so. I'm glad I did it because um, I did count and it was over 20 people um, who, who joined that corner. So these are people looking for um, a conversation with like-minded people about how this is all impacting education. So I structured it as, um, I think Kelly's gonna appreciate this. I structured it around the idea that most people don't actually have answers to any questions we have about AI. There are some objective questions like, how does a large language model work? Um, and you can give answers to those questions. But a lot of it, uh, a lot of the questions that people have, for example, how should my teaching change in the, the era of AI tools? Um, some people might have claims to answers, 
clear answers to those questions, but I don't think those are really answers. I think those are people's thoughts. And I think we're all in a space of having to articulate the questions, um, articulate our thoughts around those questions, and then try different things and then report back to each other about what's working and what's not working. Um, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. I think. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think like that needs to be reiterated a little bit more and highlighted, I guess, just to like really put it in there. Um, I feel like as we have a lot of listeners who don't really have people to talk to in their schools. Right. Um, they're one computer science teacher or they're in a, you know, in their isolation or they're teaching sixth through 10th in a computer science school, you know, in, in their school and they're too busy to have conversations, but they get caught up in a, in a social media of someone selling a book last minute and yeah. saying this is the way it goes. And, and I look at these books sometimes and I wonder, how can how can a person be such an expert to say this is how you're going to use chat gpt in the classroom yeah. <laughs> um so i think as educators we need to be aware that if we're not at least focusing on the people that have built models understand what's underneath the model um even maybe just even a little bit of coding at least we're co computer science teachers we've we've coded and we have a slight understanding of what's going on we've got to be leery about someone saying it has to be this way. And I liked what you said, Eric, about trying. I tried something. Was it right? right? Was it right. right? I don't know. I, I mentioned the fact that I opened Pandora's box. I don't know what's coming out from that box, but I tried it, um, trying to, to make sure that everything was safe. And where do we go from there? So, Yeah, Pandora's box, is a, it really is a good analogy. Um, and I would say that you didn't open Pandora's box. It has been opened for us. <laughs> um, and it really is a box that can't be closed. The mm -hmm. fact that these models can be run on really small devices with small footprints means, you know, when, it, when the tools first came out, I thought you needed $100,000, million dollar supercomputers or cloud computers in order to run these models. And it was very quickly shown that once they're trained and built, they can be run on really small devices. So there really is no way to shut it down. Um, and I think that's an important thing for for people to recognize. Yeah, I, I, the other thing that I I like about this um, approach is that it's also changing so quickly. This landscape is changing yep. nearly every day. New models are coming out, new applications. Um, and the the beautiful thing is that people are doing what people do, which is they see some new tool and they find creative and unique ways in which to apply it, right? And that happens at all levels, from the learners to the educators to professionals. Everyone has this new tool that they're all trying to figure out how to use. And so anyone who claims that they know, right, I know what's going to happen, or here's what, what you will get from these tools, is probably selling something, right? <laughs> like they're... Yeah, they're, people, they're, people are either selling something or they're overconfident if they're right. saying, here's the answer. Right. And I, I will take a step back again and just keep reiterating that there are some things that have objective answers. Yep. Um, but, and it's important to distinguish between what's an objective question and what's a subjective question. Right. And anything that I would say that's predictive in its answer, right? Anything, right. anyone who predicts what's going to happen with a, a high degree of confidence is probably predicting the same way that people did back in the 1950s or the 1890s about what the world would be like 50 years from now. Right. Um, I think the only difference is it's really what will the world be like five years from now or even five months from right. now. The time right. scale has changed dramatically. 
Right. So the structure of this conversation, I had this group of 20 people and they're all looking at me and they're like, yes, we want to talk about AI. Um, and so I, so the structure was, what are the questions that you're wrestling with about AI? Um, and then share thoughts in response to those questions. And that's it. Um, and I, with that group, um, it's kind of funny to have taught middle school and high school people for a long time and then have a group of adults to manage. So I passed out index cards and asked everybody to write down, to think about and write down one question. Um, if you could ask this group one question about AI in teaching and learning, what would it be? Um, and then I just had everybody go around and read one if they wanted to. Um, and clarify that we weren't going to try to answer all these questions. We're just hearing the questions that people have. Um, and then we split into three groups and just had small group conversations about people's responses to those questions. And again, not try to answer the question, just what is your response to the questions that people are bringing up? Um, and it's a bit of a gamble, you know, do people go away from that satisfied or they go away like, oh, I didn't get my question answered. Um, people were very satisfied because I think people are recognizing the reality of uh, the fact that there's not answers to these questions right now. Um, and it was a good foundation for the rest of the conference as far as continuing conversations with people about AI and particularly watching out for the people who are claiming to give answers. Um, so I thought, you know, it was good. Um, I don't think there's much value in trying to report back to you and your audience about what was said there because that's already two months ago. And so a lot of the questions that people are raising are still the same questions, but the answers are changing all the time. So I thought it might be interesting to just go around with the three of us and just have a brief discussion of what are the questions that we are each wrestling with or have wrestled with. Um, what do we think the audience is likely to be asking? Um, particularly like Kelly said, people who don't have others to talk to about this stuff or maybe are being spoken to uh, yeah. from a from an overconfident perspective. So what are the questions that are still floating around about AI? Um, and then what are our thoughts about those questions? And I can talk about this for hours, so you guys should go for it. <laughs> Uh, oh, I, I've been putting together a, a presentation because we, I have to give a presentation um, to our educator, to, to teachers, just regular teachers, not computer science teachers. Um, so that like I have a split, right? So I have a split for here's the basics of what it does well, what it doesn't do. Here's, here's what, here's the risk, here's et cetera. So I'm going to put that over to the, to the side those people can go research and go to the AI experts, the AI experts and read on that stuff. I want to talk about the computer science side because I kind of hit on the side, this with Katni. We, we mentioned we wanted to talk about it. We missed it because we ran out of time and it was just this, the idea of this curriculum. And I, and I, I'm going to kind of throw this back at you, Eric, you have a book sure. on the crash course, right? Mm -hmm. Your GitHub, your solutions are out there. But a kid has to be pretty savvy to know that I'm, you know, picking up a question from Eric Mathis's crash course book and using it as a project. They have to, I have to literally tell them this is where you go to get the question, or you could probably Google the solution, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it's not as easy. However, if I pose that question now and my students that have already logged in to chat GPT, these these kind of like, I'm trying to, the words slipping my mind, but these, these problems that are simple, 
and not necessarily um, unique are easily solvable. So as an educator in computer science, you start to wonder, what do we do? What do we do? And I got the easy, I think I have an easy job because I have sixth graders who have no clue what even a word print statement means or variable means. So I don't have the vocabulary. So I think in the sixth grade, when you have these really young kids that don't have the vocabulary for computer science, going into chat GPT and trying to solve a coding question is very difficult for them. Um, however, as you start to get a little knowledgeable, even after nine weeks or four weeks of, of learning the vocabulary, it starts to become something, something solvable. And so there's been a lot of my mind um, thinking about how do you restructure a curriculum to encourage learning and to kind of help with this collective intelligence. Because I'm, I won't lie, I, I'm, I'm addicted to ChatGPT. I don't like BARD, it doesn't really solve anything for me. Um, I am, I, I, my ChatGPT is my, my imaginary friend whenever I have a problem. Um, and so how do we encourage collective intelligence? How do we make sure that we're focusing on intelligence happening and learning at the same time. So that's kind of like my mindset of where I'm going as a computer science teacher. I love it. I love the, the way you're describing it and the, the questions you're asking and the grounding right. from, from those questions. All right. I have, I have two questions. I think the first one is, is similar to what Kelly's asking. And it's, I'm thinking of it as like the Goldilocks zone of learning, right? Like, what's the right amount of, uh, of use of these tools in the learning process, right? Too much, what, what are the implications of that, of having too much AI assistance, right? What about banning it entirely and pretending like it doesn't exist? Like, both of those extremes feel like they're wrong somehow, right? Where's the right zone? Where's the that Goldilocks zone where it really accelerates learning for the learner without taking away or removing the feelings of accomplishment that they might have by struggling through and working through a problem that AI could solve for them, right? So where's that Goldilocks zone is my first question. And my second question, and I, I don't even know that it's, I'm not even sure how to phrase it all the time, but do we need to start reframing or redefining what the outcomes of learning or, or teaching should be in a world with AI? Um, is, is the measure of whether someone's a competent programmer, their ability to write code perfectly from scratch, which I don't think that's ever been the, the measure, right? Or is it their ability to solve problems and use the appropriate tools as they're solving the problem to come up with a correct, valid approach to solve it, right? Um, or maybe it just takes the same outcomes we've always wanted and we've always had, but now it just makes them more, more clear, right? Because now we can see where they're using these things as aids to be able to help them solve the problems. Hmm. This is why I love talking to you both. Um, <laughs> I really like the, I really like the Goldilocks analogy. Um, and for people who didn't grow up, grow up with that, it's the, like, there's a small bowl that's, what is it? How would you say it? It's like one's too hot, it's, one's too cold. Of, 
one's just right. It's a it's a porridge. But I I often, yeah. honestly think in this case it might be more like the Goldilocks zone in astronomy. That right range from a a, a right. sun where a planet is just warm enough to be able to sustain life, right? Too close and it overheats and too far away, it never gets warm enough. Um, and so to me, I'm, I'm thinking about it like, what's that band that we want learners to orbit in where they're getting just yeah. enough warmth to sustain life in their learning <laughs> and not, not too much that burns them? Yeah. That like goes on to the head, uh, you know, and I, um, one of our past, our, our past, one of past, um, participants on the show, um, Will Richardson, I'm trying to think of his name. He's a very, you know, education reform kind of guy and, um, love a lot of the stuff he does. And he's, he's very adamant that AI is not necessarily where the future is the, 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 the future is in actually reforming education. And I'm somewhere in that dynamic mm -hmm in the middle. Um, but I do agree on a lot of his stuff about uh, agency and, and having students driving their learning. Sometimes the grades and the school and the schooling gets in the way. In fact, m more than sometimes schooling gets in the way and the grades get in the way and that driving of the, the agency of their learning, um, doesn't really happen as much. And, and I see chat GPT and this was like a comment I made to him. I see chat GPT and these AI powered tools as a way for the kids to be their, their co-designers of, of their own curriculum. And uh, it was case in the point in the, the activity I did with the eighth graders, we were studying Matplotlib, yippee skippy. I give them, you know, they go do push-ups and they see how many push-ups each person can make and they plot a bar graph and yay, they learned how to do a graph and they can apply this in science. But we challenged them with the, the, the task of actually finding a social change that they were concerned about. Um, and we wanted them to make a data visualization. And I would throw out a couple words here and there because they didn't have the knowledge. And I was like, oh, I heard, you know, there's Flask out there or there's also a program called Dash. And I wonder if you use VS Code to write a Dash, you would be able to get a visualization. And so as using these plug words, we had about four groups of kids who were able to generate a couple of tables. Now, were there tables... Um, meaningful? Did they tell the right story? No. I mean, that that's going to take some skill of understanding a lot of other things, but they were able right. to produce a cool website using ChatGPT. And, and they got to pick the direction. And we did this a lot in the past, Sean and I, where we would do um, demonstration of learning or pick your own library and learn from it or reading from a tutorial. But again, that, that was sort of a guided curriculum. And I'm wondering if with this generative AI kind of error thing, that students will start to become more of these co-designers of where they want to go within their curriculum and learning more in a direction that they seem fit hoping. That's kind of like a question in my mind too. Like, how can you do that? Empower, empower them to actually make change with technology instead of just giving them a problem and go do tic-tac-toe. 
how can we make something that's really cool? Um, I'm going to throw out a couple of the questions that I've been wrestling with, and I have been <clears throat> articulating these questions over a period of months. So um, I can just throw a bunch out there, but I think it's good to name some of them because the three of us have been thinking about this, wrestling with it and working with the tools. And I think there's some people in the audience who are right there with us as far as having um, been working with it for a while and some people who have just not had the chance to to focus on this. Um, so some of the earlier questions are like, what are these tools? How do they work? So what's the range of the tools and, and what's going on underneath the hood? Um, you don't need to understand all of it, but an accurate understanding of what it's doing and what it's not doing is really helpful as far as evaluating uh, some of the bigger questions. Um, what are people doing with these tools, both in the, the um, education world and in the professional programming world? Um, at, there's huge equity issues. Who has access to the tools? Who has access to which tools? Because when we talk about GPT, there's the GPT that people have free access to, and there's a GPT that people can pay for access to. And a lot of the misunderstanding that I've seen has been people talking about free tools and the other person is talking about um, paid tools. Some of that's going away as the free tools get better in quality, but that, that issue will probably always be there. Um, what does programming look like? What does life look like for people with access and people without access, especially over the coming years? Um, and then I get into questions of how does this impact the way we teach programming? Um, and how does it impact the way people learn programming? And it feels like, you know, a while back, the internet was supposed to fix education. Everybody has access to all the information in the world. And we know how overwhelming that was, and that didn't fix everything. And AI sure feels pretty similar. Um, and the last, the last kind of category I put in is cautions. So what should, be pe what should people be careful about, um, both with intellectual property issues and um and trust issues and any number of things um i do hope i do feel the need to put out there when i have these conversations um that i'm not an ai evangelist um i don't love it uh i think there's lots of problems with it i'm super fascinated by it um and i kind of come at it from a perspective of it is out there it's not going to be tucked back away um and so we all do need to wrestle with what we're going to do with it. So I think a good question to um, begin addressing is that that core question of what are these tools and how do they work? And I think I found a really brief way to, to clarify for people. Um, it's so they're large language models. And so what that means is, instead of talking about how they were developed and trained and all that, just what is like GPT? When you go to chat GTP, GPT and put in a question that gives you an answer, how does it generate that answer? Um, I would tell people that GPT is really a bunch of mathematical functions and it's a bunch of English tokens. And it's about 50,000 English tokens, just fragments of English words and language. And so when you ask GPT a question, it breaks your question into some tokens, it feeds it into mathematical functions, and then it recombines tokens and gives you an English answer. Um, and I think that's important to clarify because there's, there's probably a lot of people that think like if you ask a question about, say, my book, Python Crash Course, there's a lot of people who probably think GPT is like an advanced Google that goes out and does some research about 
Python crash course in my book and comes back with some regurgitation. And that's not at all what's happening. Um, and if you have an accurate understanding of that not happening, then you get a much, you're in a much better position to evaluate what comes out of these tools. Yeah. I, I was thinking about it a little bit like those, uh, uh, poetry refrigerator magnets, right? Where you can, um, nice. put, put the words in different orders and create poetry and things like that. And what ends up happening is that you, you have really good poetry that comes out of it. You have really bad poetry that comes out of it. You have dirty poetry that comes out of it. Like all of these things happen. Right. And, and these models are basically like someone rearranging, um, according to math, the order of all these different refrigerator magnets to make words for you that may or may not make sense. And as we train them, they get better and better at making stuff that fits the prompt that you were given. Right. So for me, that's like, that's been kind of my mental model for this is that one, there's a limited set of words that it can choose from. It only has the, the magnets that are on the fridge to work with. And two, it's only as it's, it doesn't actually really know anything about the world around it. All it can do is rearrange words and put them together based on the prompt that you were given. And it's like a bit of a magic trick, right? And that it's so good. It's this illusion of knowing things, right? Because it's been trained on what people have said. Yeah, that's pretty good. Well done, ChatGPT. Like you, you, you did it. You got the right prompt. You got the right answer for that prompt that I gave you, right? But it's still limited. It just doesn't seem that way because that behind it, it's such a large model that to us, it's the illusion of intelligence, right? And in some cases, it's, you know, a, sub a good substitute for what we would do as humans. Right. It's, um, I like the poetry magnet um, analogy, and I really like that because I think those poetry magnets, the larger sets are not just comprised of words. I think they have like word endings and word prefixes and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And GPT is not working from a set of words. It's working from a set of fragments of words and, and endings. So it's, it's really flexible in what it can, what it can generate. Um, I think it's really important to recognize it as a non-deterministic tool. And I think that's really interesting to recognize for programmers because we're used to all kinds of advanced programming assistance. We've been using assistance for decades. If you look at VS code and you hover over a function and it tells you the arguments that that function can accept, that's a deterministic tool. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, if the three of us open the same code base um, and hover over the same function definition, it's going to show all three of us the same exact arguments that that function accepts. If the three of us give our own uh, windows of GPT the same code and ask it the same question, the three of us are going to get three different answers. Um, and that's because it is a non-deterministic um, analysis that's happening. And that's where that power comes from. And I think some people are hearing these kinds of things and being dismissive. It's non-deterministic. You don't know if it's right or wrong. Um, it's non-deterministic. And that's why it can give you some, such interesting and useful responses. And a good comparison is a good colleague. There's no colleague that gives you a perfect answer to the questions you ask in teaching or programming or anything. Mm -hmm. Good colleagues give us a bunch of ideas and we hash out with our colleagues based on the context of what we're working in, uh, what's a good plan for proceeding. And when Kelly talks about GPT feeling like a partner for a lot of things, and I've had that same experience, um, GPT feels like a good colleague 
and knowing your colleagues' strengths and their weaknesses is critical for, for evaluating their effectiveness and making the most of that partnership. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that's where a lot of um, educators who are pushing AI have been going in their teaching. You know, here we're going to use um, ChatGPT to teach students about prompt engineering and critical thinking and um, using this generative AI with your intelligence to develop something that's pretty unique. And, and I see that, I see that as a possibility At, in the middle school. It's not very easy. I'm going to say firsthand, it is not easy expecting an eighth grader. You know, we're talking about 13 year old, some of them 14 to read the responses that come back from chat GPT and then interpret that response, decide if it's right or wrong, find out the part that you want to re-ask or, or use and, and really hone in on a specific quality. And I think that's what makes for me, like my addiction to chat GPT is sort of like coding. It's that problem solving of really digging in and finding where that path is going to lead you as you start to, to do that prompt analysis. It's really interesting. I want to really quick switch though, before I stop talking and just say like Bard, you know, Bard's been coming into the picture now and a lot of people haven't really been talking about Bard.Google. And and personally, I can see why personally, it's not one of my favorites, (laughs) but in theory, this Bard is supposed to be able to, um, go out to the, to the internet and, and, and scan and collect more information. It's not trained on that 2021, and prompts and human responses like uh, chat GPT is. And from my understanding, it's, it's now it's training still on the human responses, the human prompts, but also being able to collect more information. Um, that's going to be an interesting take. Not so much, I think in computer science because their, their responses are not as creative. Mm-hmm. And creative is the key. Creative as chat GPT in the terms of coding, it gives a very dry single solution without explanation usually. So Bard does or GPT does? Bard. Yeah, so Bard okay. will give you like a chunk of code and it's not really explained well where chat GPT, when they, when the code is produced, and this is why I can always tell when a kid's use chat GPT yeah, yeah. is because <laughs> it has every single line is like nicely coded. The syntax is beautiful. It's got, you know, the two spaces and the, the accurate amount of lines in, in the pep, you know, the pep eight. So it'll be interesting to see when Bard starts taking up, you know, slack, I guess. And, if it ever hits that for coders, it'd be interesting. How you doing, Sean? <laughs> Processing. Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking about like <laughs> thinking about how um, I, I'm 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 struggling a little bit thinking about how to phrase it exactly, but just thinking about how um, 
it's, it comes back to that Goldilocks zone again for me, right? Like what's, what's the, what are the best ways to use this? And it, it, I like the idea that we don't know, right? That like, we're learning this, we're figuring it out. We're trying to come up with those, those approaches that work best. There's no best practices yet. Cause we're trying to, to learn this. And as we learn and the tools get better, we kind of, we establish these ways of working or these, these patterns and, and we'll start to develop preferences ourselves for which tools will work best for which kinds of use cases. And like that to me is kind of that, that divergent, um, you know, branching approach to, to figuring out where and how to solve these sorts of problems, both in the technology space, the teaching space, the individual learning, um, each of those areas. Um, There's, there's a question that there's something that Sean brought up that I think is really worth digging into with the three of us and your audience. Um, you brought up the idea of curriculum. And I think this really throws up, throws the education world up in the air around programming curriculum. Uh, the three of us have been through the era where there's a drive of everybody should learn to code. And so I've never really bought into that because there are people who just don't care about it. Um, I've really bought into, I have a conviction that everybody who wants to learn about code should have the opportunity to, and should have the opportunity to ha have access to quality uh, teaching and learning about programming. Um, but what's the core drive for that? The core drive for the idea that everybody should learn the basics of, of programming was that if you want to automate anything, you need to understand how to program. And I think that's going away. And so I did, so I'll plug one thing. Um, people know me as the author of Python Crash Course. Um, I'm still doing that, still maintaining the book. Um, new edition came out this year. It's been very satisfying. Um, but I'm also writing a, a weekly newsletter. It's at Mostly Python, called Mostly Python. And it's at mostlypython.substack. And I'm excited about that because it's pushing me to articulate ideas every week about the current state of programming. So it gets me out of the, I wrote about the basics and some projects and stay in that world. So when figuring out how to talk about AI um, in an informed way, um, I made myself a small project and did some work without AI and then did some work with AI and used that as kind of a, um, a concrete example. And my goal for PyCon this year beyond the education summit was to have face-to-face -face conversations with people about what they're really doing with AI. Because so much of what we see from our own houses is blog posts and video takes and whatnot. And there are so many of the ones that reach us fall into the camp of AI is changing everything. Um, nothing's the same or AI is garbage. Um, it's hype and it's not changing anything. And the reality is, is in the middle as always, almost always. So, the real world example that I focused on is because I'm writing a newsletter, I was dealing with screenshots a lot. Um, and screenshots look better with borders um, because a screenshot tends to have the same background as a web page. So you put a border on it and it, it uh, stands out from the background. Mac OS does not have an inbuilt utility for easily adding borders to images. You can use preview, but you've got to like click and drag a box and make it match on all corners. and is tedious. And if you're doing that more than a couple of times, it's, it's not fun. Um, so I wrote myself, I, I took a short afternoon and wrote myself a small utility that lets me 
just run the command add border um, and name the image file and it adds a border. And then it has a few CLI options, add border dash thickness, dash color, whatnot. Um, it started out as python add border.py, but you can structure your project so that you can end up with a command line tool. Um, so it's in Python. Um, one of the things I love about Python is, you know, that project is maybe a hundred lines of code, but it stands on the people who created Pillow and other imaging libraries. Um, and so what I did for this analysis, I wrote that project on my own. I did a round of refactoring on my own. Um, and then I used an AI tool, I used GPT, um, to guide me through um, the refactoring work um, and do the refactoring work for me as much as it could. And it was fascinating. It was so much easier. Um, it was easier for me because I know what I should do for refactoring. Um, and then I packed it up and it's on PyPI. Um, it was helpful to do that before PyCon because when people said, AI is useless, they can't really do anything. I end up being able to tell people like, okay, here is my real world problem. I need to add borders to images. It's for experienced programmers, it's a trivial task. It's the kind of thing that most people with a competent understanding of, of um, Python and using third party packages can put together. Um, I couldn't do it off the top of my head. I had to do a bunch of research, um, but it was straightforward. Um, it's, it's the kind of tool that most competent programmers can build for themselves. And then suddenly, if you're writing a newsletter, your screenshots are better than everybody else's. Um, it's a classic example of something that if you don't have programming skills, you cannot build that. So if you use macOS and you don't have any programming skills, there's no way for you to easily add borders to images. And it's really interesting too, that you cannot, you can't really pay somebody to build you that tool um, because they're, a reasonable programmer is going to charge you more than you probably want to pay for a little tool that just adds uh, mm -hmm. images to borders. Um, and my big takeaway from that, and the, the reason I take a few minutes to explain that particular context, anybody who, we go back to the goals. What's your goal in wanting to learn about programming? If your goal is, I want to be a programmer for the rest of my life, um, you know, AI isn't impacting things a whole lot. You still need to learn the basics of programming. You need to understand what a variable is, what a data structure is and all that. Uh, but if your whole goal is just, I want to build small tools that automate little tasks, I would argue that you don't really need to learn to code anymore. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to clarify that if a non-programmer asked GPT, I'm on Mac OS, can you give me a tool that adds borders to images, it'll spit out the code. You can then say to it, I have no idea what to do with this code. And it'll, it'll walk you through what to install on your computer, where to save it, what to do with it. And you, a, like Kelly was saying, a person who can interact with, um, something like GPT, um, and not get stuck at Ooh, what you gave me doesn't work. Uh, but somebody can say it doesn't work and here's what's happening. You can probably go through a process where GPT will build you the tools you need. And so if that workflow does what you need and your real interest in programming was just build those small tools and then focus on the things I really care about, like writing newsletters about non-technical subjects, <laughs> then those people don't really need to learn programming anymore.
Um, and I think that's that's something that needs to be talked about in the, in the education world. I'm going to disagree with you. I I think I, I think it falls a little bit in the like the Pixar movie Ratatouille, right? The whole message of that is is not that everyone can cook, it's that anyone can cook, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the idea of it is that you know, a good programmer could come from anywhere, right? And anyone mm-hmm. who who wants to program should have the opportunity to do so. But I do think that there's a certain level of uh, literacy about computational thinking that is extremely helpful to have in the world that we live in today. And I say, I'm, I'm not thinking that everyone has to be a master chef level of programmer, but they should know how to make spaghetti, right? They should know that there's something that they can do, right? Um, when it comes to automating things or making their lives simpler, to be able to to even ask the question right so it's kind of like that they i feel that people still need enough knowledge about how computers work and how to think about tasks in a computational way to even know that something like this is possible to be able to ask for it right so they may not need to even know how to code in python but if you ask someone who hadn't been a programmer before to put you know, then they're writing a blog and they want to put borders on their images. They're going to go get, you know, paint or, or um, some sort of tool and they're going to manually do it and and sit there and struggle through it and add the border every time without even knowing to ask for an automated tool to do it. So there's a certain amount of like, I think there's like a base level of knowledge that would help to, to know that you can solve that with code, whatever that means, right? Or with automation just enough to be able to ask for it or to ask if it's possible and then they can go the rest of the way using the tools that that help assist in that process it's like the rise of the generalist or it's like that we were all specialists we were all specialists in our fields in the i'm not going to date myself but you know you have the 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 80s to 2000s we all needed you know before that right we all had to be specialists and now we're in an age of information where we can now become more generalist i can know a bit about programming i can know a little bit about playing a recorder (laughs) and we can do all kinds of of things but not necessarily specializing It, it it's an interesting it's an interesting thing about it and and i want to throw this question and i keep I keep kind of like um, twisting the knife and in, in other language uh, computer science people I had a conversation and I'm like, and we're still teaching JavaScript. Let me think. Um, generative AI is made on what? Uh, 90, 99.8% Python and what the other is like terminal or something. Um, Bard, Google, I'm assuming it is also all Python. So if this is all running and the age of AI is pushing more towards Python and less towards everything else that it was running on in the past, you know, where do we go from there? And is it critical for the kids to have a certain understanding, all kids, like Sean said, have a certain understanding that this is powered by code that was you know, this is how it was collected. This is what it was trained on. I feel, I feel strongly in the the students having to have some sort of education about programming, about AI, um, about how it was made, and and about the algorithms and data that's collected on you. And I think we kind of lump mm, that in yes. as computer scientists yes. that that AI literacy is going to be more 
um, predominant in the classroom, in the computer science classroom, like that needs to be a huge strand. Like if you're not teaching AI literacy, where are we going? And that kind of goes in the thing. We don't really know what we're doing hundred percent, but we can teach the basics to the kids and go from there. Oh my God, we can go on and on and, but I have to cut this short. <laughs> yeah. I like that phrase AI, AI literacy. Uh, if I can throw out one last perspective on this, um, I'm not of the mindset that what I just said is the answer to this. Um, so it really is, those are my thoughts around this. And I think the conversation needs to move that that conversation of should everybody learn to code, um, should be re-asked in the, um, the AI era. And I'll just throw out there two intro courses. Imagine an intro course that's structured as we've often structured them, where we do teach people the basics. The goal is they learn about variables, data structures, um, use those in some way so that they make a tic-tac-toe program, any number of something tangible mm -hmm. that uses what they've learned. And they they come away from that class with an understanding of, of how programming fundamentally works. So imagine an alternative intro class where the goal is to name a small project you want to build in the beginning and then use AI tools to help you build that as quickly and efficiently as possible and understand enough of what comes out to be able to work with it. I would argue that those are two very different classes, both of which are really interesting. And that's that's the kind of conversation I'd like to see happening in the, the education world. And I'll, and, and I'll add the cherry yeah. on top, smushed in the middle, and this is like our plan, hopefully. Um, everyone always asks about the curriculum. This is not our written curriculum at Pinecrest, but mm -hmm. this is my mind curriculum. This is where I'm going in, in the classroom curriculum. I'm thinking you no know, basics. I'm thinking chat GPT on this end, smushed in the middle, thanks to Katni and on in our future. Um, we have a future person on podcasts with drones. That hands-on approach, those hardware things that even if you get the code, getting it on the hardware, tinkering with the hardware, playing, learning, hopefully not breaking things with flying drones in the classroom, but they do have the little mini ones now. Um, but those kind of things are, are going to be interesting to have in the classroom coming going forward because we get the basics. We play around with our project on the end with chat GPT or whatever, and we, we create in the middle. And I think that's going to bring about some really beautiful things. Um, I'm not going to let you say anything because I'm going to add a little bit of thoughts before we go. And this is a great conversation. And those of people who are listening, it's kind of going to trigger some thoughts because in a couple of weeks, we will be having um, Philip, I always pronounce his name wrong, Gao. Gao. Uh, Guo, I think. Guo and Sam Lau, who did a study, um, and I love their cognitive uh, science background, where they did a study um, with some computer science instructors from around the world and talked about their thoughts. So they're going to be continuing that conversation. And I, I, that's what I love about having this conversation first. And then we sliding in. So I'm sure it's not going to go away. We probably be talking a lot about chat GPT before the school starts. Sean? Yeah, I think we've, I think we've all found our own ways of saying there's a middle ground that people need to find. Yeah. Yep. And, and the journey to get there is the fun part, right? Like we get yes. to do new things every day and, and try things out. And I, I think, you know, my last thought as I'm, um, as we're talking about this is that 
the the world of AI is rapidly being carved up among the big yes. players. Like everyone is trying to put their stake in the ground and say, you know, we're going to to gain our market share, right? And we're gonna and we're gonna claim it. And it really just makes me appreciate how um, how the value of open source and free software and self-hosting and people who are out there creating amazing things and sharing it with the world so that it's that answer to, you know, what happens when three or four big companies control all of the AI tools that we're using, right? And they can control what, what, um, what answers we get or what responses we get. And the answer to that is go make it yourself. Right. Go go build it, go host it, go try it out. Um, the tools are out there and and take take your own control of this space and, and learn about how it works in a really hands on sort of way um, and just makes me feel appreciative for all that people are doing. Yeah. And for the audience, um, please tell your stories. So everybody's most people are trying something. Um, you are probably trying something that other people have not um, try to be a guest on a podcast, a podcast, write a blog post. Share your story. Please share what's working and even what doesn't work. It's really helpful. Yeah, and they can share that directly. And also in the LinkedIn, we have the live stream going in with LinkedIn. And there's we have numbers are growing in our LinkedIn community. We have about 320, which I'm really excited nice. about. Um, some great people. And I've been hounding some AI experts and begging them through messages to see if I can get Andrew... I don't know how to nice. pronounce his like NG. What's his name? N- I don't know how to pronounce him. Andrew Lee Lee. I've been, I've been emailing all the big names saying, you know, listen, I know you guys are busy, but educators need some answers and it would be great to get you on the show. So if anybody has any connections to that, that would be awesome. Eric, any final thoughts? Um, I have one more um, suggested follow. Um, I read Charlie Guo's artificial ignorance. It's another Substack newsletter. I'm not a super fan of Substack, by the way, um, but uh, his his newsletter is the best weekly roundup of what's happening that goes beyond just a link um, list. So he mentions what's happening, gives a brief summary, and it's what's allowed me to ha- have some sense of what's what's happening in a world that's changing too fast to keep up with. Nice, very Excellent. nice. Put that in the show notes. So we'll we'll put links uh, in the show notes to that. Uh, Eric, we're going to put a link to um, your newsletter in there. So if you want to follow um, mostly Python at Substack, you can do that. Um, Eric is on Mastodon uh, as well. We'll put a link to that profile in the show notes as well. Um, I'm on Mastodon also, although I think I need to start getting back on there. I've been drawn back into the world of Twitter and, and I want to want to stop that before I go too much further. Um, I think I'm leaving Reddit at the end of this month when my uh, my third party app is no longer supported. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be looking for some new homes to uh, post and share content and communicate with people. So we all are. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, Kelly, any updates from your side? Nope. Still two more months. Uh, if anybody didn't guess the wins of the week, obviously. You guys can uh, put that in the uh, in the <laughs> in the LinkedIn <laughs> or share out. Um, that's some fun things. Be creative with Chat GPT. So sounds great. Well, then I think that does it for this week. Uh, so for teaching Python, this is Sean, and this is Kelly signing off. <laughs>